we tried to give them perspective on what a difficult path they have come across. I get an opportunity to say, well, let's paint your picture going forward. What is that going to look like? Welcome to the Edify podcast, where our guests share practical wisdom on living our faith in public. I'm Mary Fiorito. Thank you for joining us today. Our Edify guest today is Deacon Jose Santos, who ministers to unaccompanied minors in San Antonio, Texas. We're so grateful that you would share details about your ministry with us because it's certainly very timely. Can you start by explaining for us, please, how you help the boys? What is your role when you minister to them? And what does that look like from a practical standpoint? Well, these young men, all under the age of 18, um, are in a process to be connected with their sponsor or host families in the interior of the U.S. And while they're in process to be connected with these families, they are in a facility, kind of like a dormitory type setting. Um, They are offered the opportunity, aside from other services that they get in the facility, they're given the opportunity to meet with someone uh, for be it counseling or spiritual assessment, and just to discuss. So they choose voluntarily to come and meet with me, uh, and we review different things. I have the privilege of knowing Archbishop Garcia Siller because he came from Chicago, where I live, and I had um, an additional privilege of working with him when um, when he worked in Chicago. And I know he has a tremendous heart for migrant communities, of course, being an immigrant himself. can you, do you interact with him frequently? Was it he who asked you to take this ministry on or did you meet him after you'd already started doing it? All of the above. I mean, basically when the situation started happening that uh, there were so many uh, coming uh, across the border and that, that they were being held or in such facilities, he was concerned about their sacramental life. And on that basis, he did appeal to these uh, holding places to see if they would allow the Catholic Church to come and minister to uh, the boys. Uh, They were allowed, and we as deacons, when we are uh, initially ordained, are both assigned a parish, but we also get an extra parochial um, assignment. Uh, Some of us may be assigned to Catholic cemeteries to make sure that those who show up without someone there to do a proper Christian burial offers that to them. Some of us are assigned to the prisons. I was assigned to uh, a a larger organization of which within that organization um, I entered this facility. So Archbishop Gustavo is aware of my presence there. He comes at least once a year to offer a mass uh, near the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe. uh, And... uh, so he he is aware of these boys. Mm, yeah, no, he has a tremendously pastoral heart and just one of the kindest people I think I've ever met in ministry. Let's go back to the boys and young men that you're working with. Um, are they exclusively immigrants to the United States or would there be boys from who might be American citizens who are in the facility for some other reason? The facility uh, that, that I have experience with, some are uh, just for domestic kids, uh, um, U.S. citizens. Some are for international uh, kids as well. There's always a separation of the two. Uh, I meet with the international kids, and um, which uh, countries they typically come from are predominantly Central American countries. 
sometimes we do also see uh, kids from Mexico, seen kids from Nicaragua, which is rare, and occasionally from Cuba as well. Uh, from time to time, I've seen uh, young men from Africa who somehow cross the southern border and wind up in these facilities. So there's migratory patterns. You know, if you're coming up along the coast, you're coming through the center of, of Mexico or on the far west, uh, they may have a different migratory pattern that doesn't wind up in the central section that now feeds San Antonio facilities. Okay. And so for those of the listeners who aren't as familiar with the geography, how far is San Antonio from the border? 150 miles. I'm told there's some kind of uh, requirement uh, that these facilities be a certain number of miles away from the border. So those that you see that enter and cross the border are only maintained there 24, 48 hours at the most, and they're already trying to place them into the interior as fast as that. That seems to make sense for acclimation purposes that, you know, you're not in that kind of holding pattern. So are the are the young men that you're serving, are they just generally there for a couple of days or do you have a more long-term program with them? That has changed. I mean, the, the it is limited by how fast the, uh, the vetting process goes. Um, usually a young man uh, submits himself to border patrol uh, uh, upon crossing the border. Uh, they're declared minors. And on that basis, then they enter the, the process that I work with. Um, once they come to the facility, there was a time, of course, since we had COVID, that there was an isolation, be it 10 days, five days now, no days, uh, unless you're symptomatic. Uh, and then they enter the, the community. They're immediately provided with some kind of attorney ad litem to begin the immigration process. Uh, they contact whatever host family they are familiar with. A home study is done. A background check is done on the host sponsoring family to confirm that they are capable of uh, either they have a relation, including sometimes doing blood tests to confirm, you know, chromosomal uh, kinship. Uh, and uh, then they... Uh, they're placed. It used to be 46, 47 days, I'm told, that the average these days is about 24 or 26 days in the facility before they move on. So enough to establish a, a bit of a spiritual or pastoral relationship with them. I typically get one visit with each of these. You know, occasionally, I've seen one twice. Okay. Uh, it, depending on my frequency, uh, it, it's affected by my day job, so to speak, uh, and my availability, which is to do a quick assessment and counseling. Are the majority of them Catholic? Because I think if, you know, probably most Americans think Hispanic, they think that's Catholic. That's a good question. I know that's not true in every case. They're all asked. I mean, they're asked, well, what faith, you know, practices uh, are you familiar with? What have you grown up with? And I would say about 50 to 60 percent are Catholic and the other 40 to 50 percent are, uh, they call themselves Christian, a Protestant group of some kind. Okay. And, you know, my own parents, both of my parents were immigrants and my dad had to wait in Canada for two years before he could prove he had a sponsor and he had a job. And um, I know, you know, there's a big immigrant community where I live in Chicago, from Poland, from Mexico, uh, Ireland, other countries. And I, I get the sense um, that they, they support them coming here. Of course, they had chose the same thing for themselves and their families, but they're, they're quite adamant about following the rule of law that they had to follow to come in. They say, hey, you should have done this the right way. And I know it may be more complicated for Central Americans in particular to do that. Um, 
And that's a, probably another podcast for another day. Now, I know um, in addition to your status as a permanent deacon, you're also a physician. Um, do you have a particular specialty within medicine? Yes, I'm, I'm what's called a physical medicine and rehabilitation specialist, also called a physiatrist. Okay. So do you work with any of the young men that you see in a clinical setting, or is this just strictly uh, a spiritual one? Strictly spiritual, although it does cross over on the academic side. Uh, all the men are asked, well, what are your aspirations? What do you think God is calling you to do in your life? Um, some just want to come and be laborers. Some want to enter college. Some uh, want to be teachers. Uh, we've had a couple who are, are um, discerning the vocations. So in a case like that, uh, I try to give them a, a quick sketch uh, rundown on what they're facing and how to approach it strategically. Right. Well, are the boys that um, you're working with, do they cross with any other extended family or even a parent? Or are these boys who, generally speaking, are by themselves? Well, they leave their homes alone. They do not come as a family you know, grouping. Uh, most of them may meet up with other boys migrating. They may you know, be twosies and threesies. At some point, they separate because they want to wind up at a different part of the border crossing into the U.S., but most are either between one and three boys at a time, not large groups. And, and it's never been family structure. I had one young man come with his mother. Unfortunately, they were separated uh, on the path uh, because uh, cartel kept the mother. Oh, OK. And well, that's that leads me to my next question, which is if, if there's a sort of underlying reason why they all want to come to the United States, is there one that's kind of predominant among many reasons that a migrant would have to want to become a citizen of the United States? There appears to be a consistency whether uh, they've been prepared, uh, but they all want, they all say, I'm here to better my life. Uh, I'm here to improve the prosperity of myself and my family uh, as, as their answer. Uh, if there's things going on at home, yes, sometimes uh, there is uh, they're getting to be of age that a gang may want them to be joining them. So they have to start making choices. Right. Do I join a gang or do I get out of here? You can't say no or risk your life. So uh, at that point, many times families are preparing, starting to raise money uh, to help them with their uh, transport costs. And they all have someone within the family already in the U.S. that they're planning to meet up with. Facilities do allow them uh, regular phone calls back to their home, international calls to stay in touch with them, let them know that they arrived, let them know that, that they're safe. And uh, and sometimes families have to stay involved. If sponsor number one doesn't work out, who, who else do we know? And so forth. So families stay involved. Yeah, that's, that's very good to hear. Um, well, one of the things at the Bishop's Conference website, uh, which is a really terrific source of information for Catholics who want to know a little bit more about what the church teaches on immigration and migration, um, is that sovereign nations have a right to control their own borders. And you know, now we know we've seen the end of Title 42, which allows, um, which of course during the pandemic allowed the border agents to remove illegal aliens and send them back to, to Mexico. So kind of depending on which news outlet you listen to regularly, it seems that there's been um, quite a significant surge um, where I've seen figures anywhere from 7,000 to 18,000 a day people attempting to cross into the United States. And I imagine that has 
impacted your own ministry quite significantly. Um, is is it? Uh, have you seen this great surge among the young men that you're uh, working with, or has that is that more of a trickle down thing, and you'll see them kind of down the line? You know, the analogy I give you is you're looking at a very large construction project, and you're standing on the street and looking through a peephole at at what might you see through a peephole, and that's that's the perspective uh, because within these facilities they all have a, a finite capacity be they we only can handle 80 kids or we can only handle 40 kids and so many times they may be near capacity sometimes they they reduce uh, to half that just depending on what the border is calling and saying hey we have five kids we have 10 kids uh, available how many beds do you have so uh, my portion my people is limited to how many beds there is in our facility uh, and like I say, they, they uh, run uh, 50 to 100% capacity. And I'll give you some ideas of the kids that, that I work with and, and their stories. Um, typically, uh, like I say, there may have been a threat on them having to join a gang, a decision made for them to seek uh, more safe grounds. Uh, the, the travel can sometimes be very straightforward. You get on a bus, you cross from one end of the country to the other, you're deposited, you know, at this end. Um, even bus travel can be dangerous because if, if those of cartels want to pick you off, they know to wait at the bus station to see who comes off looking like they're from Central America. So uh, sometimes the, it, it's safer to finish the walk into the country to the border area instead of getting off at the bus station. So I mean, it's, it's very variable. Uh, they all do arrive, Not at least the ones that come and talk to me, uh, not many have been in, in uh, life-threatening situations. Although I, I've had a young man who was in one of these trailers that gets left at the border, gets overheated, and only by the grace of God are they discovered in time that they can save them, um, instead of them dying of, of, of heat. And now they have to figure out what am I going to do with myself? And like I say, they all want to work or they want to finish their schooling. Something may not have had an opportunity to do. Uh, all of them, I get an opportunity to say, well, let's paint your picture going forward. What is that going to look like? Uh, you're going to come. It's important you learn this language of English as quickly as you can. Uh, learn how to introduce yourself, say thank you, say please. I mean, very basics, just, you know, survival skills. Uh, and then say, what is your life going to look like? You know, you, you may meet someone from your country. You may meet someone from here. Um, and, I, and I just blow their minds by saying, can you imagine? You may have children who can't speak Spanish, you know, and, and it, it does happen uh, very quickly. So we try to expand their envelope of, of what might happen in their lifetime uh, of being here. Um, the concept of you've been helped, now you must find a way to help the next person down the road uh, is, is something that we introduce. So we try to introduce as much as possible. We try to give them perspective on what a difficult path they have come across. So this is, this is uh, all what we get to do in a very brief manner, uh, give them an idea how to find a church, how to establish uh, their sacraments, again, if they're Catholic, uh, we carry rosaries, we carry prayer cards, uh, examination of conscience pamphlets. 
while they're in the facility, the facility has uh, arranged for them to attend Mass on Sundays at a nearby parish. Uh, they're also taken for uh, reconciliation services as well in, in the period of time that they're there. So uh, fortunately, the facilities that I have experience with are uh, assisting them in maintaining their, their sacramental life. You know, you've kind of alluded to some of the dangers that uh, the boys and young men that you work with face. Can you uh, speak about that a little bit more specifically? What are some of the stories you've heard or very specific examples of dangers that are posed to these boys when they are making this journey from their home country to the United States? Those who prey upon the immigrant I mean, is, is basically what it can be. It can be an, an older youth. It can be a, an adult who sees them, fig- figures out very quickly that uh, they're unaccompanied, uh, may say, you need to pay me a little passage to get past this section uh, of your you know, path. So are these like drug cartels or are they just kind of random street gangs? Is it is a drug industry? Is it something else? Could it be part of a trafficking, you know, industry? Or is it is it just all kind of all over the map in terms of the da- the real and present dangers that exist for these young men? I don't know if, if they come out and ask them, hey, are you part of a cartel? Uh, so it, it's typically individuals, not groups, who approach them. Uh, and uh, at the border, I would say it's probably going to be more organized cartel, because aside from whatever else they're, they're um, trafficking in, uh, they control certain uh, stretches of border, and anyone passing through there has to deal with them. All right. Well, at the parish where you serve as a deacon, um, I would imagine that the parishioners are aware of, of the ministry. How, how do... How does the average Catholic in the pew in your archdiocese, um, how do they feel about what's going on at the border and their proximity to it? And then, you know, vis-a-vis their own role as, as Catholics who are called to, you know, recognize the dignity of each human person. Well, as a parish, as most parishes, there is a St. Vincent de Paul uh, set up. Do uh, immigrants show up from time to time? Yes, they do. Matter of fact, you mentioned Venezuelans. We did have a Venezuelan family show up after Mass on Sunday uh, seeking assistance. Of course, that's a terrible time to show up when you're sent, most St. Vincent de Paul's are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to noon. So that becomes an issue. So we assist them as we can. Uh, and many of them already have uh, plane tickets to the interior, but they have you know 12 hours to catch a plane. They just have the clothes on their back. Fortunately, between our parish and, and the airport is a, a goodwill industries, you know, type place open, even on the weekends that we can direct them to, to get at least another set of clothing or something else. Well, is it, um, you know, your sense that there's the same kind of division, I think, that we see in the American public right now about all of this, is that reflected in your diocese or do people simply because they encounter the migrants as people, um, and not as news stories or, you know, numbers, do they have a more um, nuanced look at what's going on at the border right now? Well, among our Catholic brothers, I, I hear the full spectrum of opinions on uh, we should have, you know, closed borders. Uh, uh, we should be open to our, our brothers coming from the South. Uh, so we hear them all. And uh, obviously how to address it, is is asking them uh, or reminding them what what does our gospel tell us to do with our brothers uh you know quoting 
from St. Luke, uh, you know, chapter 10 on the story of the Good Samaritan. We remember that we as a country are prosperous and that at times we are like that innkeeper who have been given two denarii and we're told, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Uh, we must remember that uh, for what we have and what we can share, uh, we need to share with, with those less fortunate. Uh, issues of, of the border come up. It, it is open. It is hard to control this border. And is it just um, minors seeking to improve their you know, lot in life? Or is it others who mean us harm? Uh, well, I'm sure that that's a question. It's it's a legitimate question, not one that I have a solution for. Right. And, you know, and, and the church acknowledges that. This is a very fine line to walk. Of course, we you know recognize the human dignity and the human rights of every person who's created in the image and likeness of our Lord. And you want to be respectful of that. But that by the same token, you also want to be respectful of laws. I mean, the church is not encouraging people to break the law. And being compassionate to someone doesn't mean that you're encouraging to break laws either. How do you find that your own um, your own life has changed as a deacon and as a doctor by by doing this kind of work? Or have you, have you seen a change? Um, has the Lord used this to shape you in a different way? Well, that's quite a question. Um, like any time, when you hear the perspective of someone else and you compare it to your own, it certainly gives you room for being grateful. At you know, by by the grace of God, uh, we were given a different set of opportunities and a different set of challenges than than these young people, uh, both for ourselves and and for our children. Uh, the other thing that comes across is realize you and I live in a world where our material needs are pretty much taken care of. And we have ad advanced in our education. And unfortunately, when we have both all our material needs taken care of and our education taken care of, we can become somewhat jaded. Uh, and as we become jaded, we forget the, the role of God in our lives. The, the part that is very heartwarming to see is how close to their faith, because they don't have those material uh, luxuries, because they have not had the educational uh, opportunities, how close to God they are. Have you had anyone ever kind of follow up with you after they've left the facility where you minister and say, this is how, this is where I am now or anything similar to that? Well, there's some very hard rules in all facilities because of the nature of the work that um, we do speak, you know, what's your first name, what country you're from, but we don't get into details and we never exchange emails or phone numbers uh, at all uh, on purpose. So it, it's maintained, uh, it's almost like a safe house type situation. Uh, and part of that, um, now the facility does call them 30 days into their placement just to see how's it going, is, is how you're adjusting and so forth. So I'm told they make a one-time call, but I myself uh, have not uh, run into them. And that's the other thing. They're being processed in San Antonio, but they're going to all 48 uh, of the continental states. They, they go far and wide. We know that there is a vetting process, both on saying these children are to stay and let's go ahead and place them with their sponsors. We know there's a vetting process on where they are landing, meaning there's actually a home study 
one of my children is is adopted, and you know we had a home study to make sure right. our home was uh, mm-hmm. capable of of bringing in this child to our home. So something similar is done. Therefore, that you know whether now a follow up home study is done, that part is is outside our our realm. So we don't I don't have access to that information at all. Well, just um, you know, as we wrap up here, uh, Doctor, can you share with us an anecdote or? a story of some sort that might help um, the average person who only sees headlines about immigration and doesn't hear about the, the kinds of people who are coming here and why they're coming here. Is there is there one that might kind of encapsulate why you do what you do? Once again, just the, the sense, their deep sense of faith, their willingness to, to pray. We always finish uh, our sessions in prayer. Um, their desire to uh, understand the faith. They may have been catechized, uh, but they, they've not gone into great depth. Um, they're all provided with, with a bilingual Bible so that they can, uh, continue at least their, their review of scripture. Uh, it's, it's very interesting to pray with, with our, as they call themselves, Christian brothers, because frequently whatever you are praying with them, they may repeat and enhance upon. And so there's almost like a reverberation in, in prayer uh, uh, in, in such a, a prayer session. Uh, so, so that's actually uh, rewarding. Hearing this one child who was caught in, in a trailer and who survived one of these hot trailers, uh, to hear about how deeply he went into uh, praying to God, wishing to live, wishing to see his family again, and then, of course, his, his elation at, at uh, um, being found and coming out of that situation alive uh, was, was, was mm, heartwarming. I can't imagine. Well, it's incredible work that you're doing, um, and we're very grateful for you um, to share your stories with us today and to help us better understand from a human perspective and a spiritual perspective what's going on there at the border. We certainly will be praying for you and for your very critical ministry. Thank you. Thank you for asking. God bless you. Thank you for listening. To make it easier for you to listen to future Edify podcast episodes, please make sure you subscribe over at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thank you.